0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com.
1: If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony,
2: well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast.
3: You would think at this moment, during the trial of Derek Chauvin, he's the cop who murdered George Floyd by kneeling on his neck for nine minutes in Minneapolis. You would think at this moment, cops all over the country would be erring on the side of not pulling black men over for having air fresheners hanging from their rear view mirrors. And then, you know, accidentally mixing up your taser with your service revolver and killing them and erring on the side of not summarily executing 13 year old boys for running away from them. You might think that, but you'd be wrong because no group, is more committed, it seems, to making the case for defunding the police than the police themselves. As I sat down to record this morning, I thought, a verdict is going to be in at any minute. I should check. It's not. No verdict yet. I am praying the jury returns a guilty verdict. And I'm praying, and that's rare for me because I am not a praying man, but I am making an exception here. I am praying that the cracks we all saw in this trial, in the blue wall of silence, Cops testifying against a cop. I am praying that those cracks widen and grow and the wall of blue silence collapses. And then while I was online, I thought maybe I should check to see if there's been another mass shooting since the last mass shooting, which was 10 minutes ago. We were all so anxious to return to normal after more than a year of rolling COVID lockdowns. And here we are, the new normal, same as the old normal. Well, our normal, our national normal, our national sickness, guns and gun fetishists and gun violence. Joe Biden said it best.
4: This has to end. It's a national embarrassment. It is a national embarrassment what's going on. And it's not only these mass shootings that are occurring. Every single day, every single day, there's a mass shooting in in the United States if you count." all those who were killed out in the streets of our cities and our rural areas it's a national embarrassment and must come to an end
3: you know i think that actually might be the first time we've heard joe biden's voice on this podcast he's right it is an embarrassment a national embarrassment one of many police violence national embarrassment our health care system is a national embarrassment our inaction on climate change, a national embarrassment, and a danger to the world. Kids in cages, a national embarrassment still. Student loan debt, national embarrassment, laws that make it a crime for parents to provide gender-affirming care to their trans kids proposed in Texas, and laws that require schools to report kids to their parents if they're caught displaying gender non-conforming behaviors at school, a law proposed in North Carolina, an embarrassment. And our pot laws. It's 420. Let's talk about our pot laws for a second. Our pot laws, getting better state by state, they're legalizing pot in New York state. Good to see. But our pot laws really are an embarrassment. And I got to say, as a Democrat who voted for Joe Biden, I'm embarrassed by his opposition to legalizing marijuana federally. You know, I was at a White House reception for Pride back before Obama came out in favor of gay marriage, back before Biden came out for same-sex marriage and kind of boxed Obama in on the issue. Obama had said he was evolving on the issue of marriage equality, so I brought buttons to that party, little tasteful ones, perfect for lapels. Buttons that said, evolve already on them. And I passed those buttons out. Biden showed up at the end of that party, and I gave him one. Dr. Biden showed up too, Jill Biden, and Terry gave her one. I feel like we need to go back to the White House and pass out those buttons again, evolve already, but about weed this time. Not that I'll get another invitation to a White House reception. I didn't get another one after passing out those buttons the first time, and I imagine I'm on some sort of White House universal do not invite list now. For that, and perhaps all sorts of other reasons. Like laws that allow cops to pull people over for having air fresheners hanging from the rearview mirrors or busted taillights, like stop and frisk policies, pot laws, laws that criminalize recreational use of marijuana. Those laws give cops a license to stop, harass, confront, detain, plant evidence on, and as we've seen again and again, kill people. People of color, black people in particular, are disproportionately arrested and prosecuted and thrown in jail for pot use. According to normal, African-Americans are arrested for pot possession at four times the rates of whites, even though both groups use pot at the same rate. In 2020, just in New York City alone, 94% of people arrested for pot possession were people of color in a city that is 43% white. If a cop can stop and arrest someone because the cop claims that person smells like pot, none of us are safe from police harassment but let's not kid ourselves. These laws are really a license for the police to harass at will black and brown people. They always have been. They always will be so long as they remain on the books. Recreational pot is legal in white ass white Alaska right now, but possession remains a felony in Alabama, which is why we need action at the federal level to decriminalize, legalize marijuana in all 50 States. And it's a fucking no-brainer, low-hanging fruit for a Democratic administration. 80% of Democrats support legal weed, as do more than 50% of Republicans, 55% in some polls. It'll be embarrassing. To borrow that word from Joe Biden, it will be very embarrassing if Democrats can't get this done and can't get it done now. All right, a little bit of business before we get to your calls. I'm excited to announce that I'm going to host one of the Hump Greatest Hit screenings, the first Saturday, May 1st. Let's all get together, watch some of the sexiest, kinkiest, dirtiest, funniest short films in the last 16 years together live on Zoom with me and my mean lesbian boss. Get your tickets to that at Hump Film Fest. And a special announcement for Savage Lovecast Magnum subscribers. Starting May 6th, I will be hosting a new virtual lunchtime get-together on the regular for Magnum subscribers only called Sack Lunch, a live video hangout free for Magnum subscribers. We're going to get together. We're going to have lunch. We're going to talk about that week's Lovecast. I'm going to hear your thoughts. We can talk. Subscribe to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast now at SavageLovecast.com, and we will send you an invitation to the very first SAC Lunch on May 6th. All right, coming up on today's show, happy Infertility Awareness Week, everybody. My guest on the Magnum today, very fitting, it's environmental and reproductive epidemiologist, Dr. Shauna Swan, author of Countdown, which looks at how all the toxins that we're pumping into our environment are messing with our fertility and our genitals People, Good thing it's also 420. Again, you might need a little pot after hearing that interview. It is distressing. Also, we have two separate callers this week asking me about hiring a
4: unicorn. All that on today's show. Stay tuned. So Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. This is it. This is my quarantine sex-cess story. I'm married to a woman I met many, many years ago, 30 years ago. And we both really... Like sex. But we were not clicking. We could not figure out a way to make it work properly for both of us. A couple of days ago, a couple of months ago now, it's been about eight weeks. I brought her this idea of FLR, female-led relationship, where she would be in charge. Dan, when I tell you she took to it, she jumped right in. She has decided, and let's be clear, I asked her, that she would very much like to cuckold me. She's already talking to a bull. Our sex life has gone from once a week and kind of begrudging to a daily tease fest. She's coming to bed at the end of the day, waking me up because I have to get up earlier than her most days so that we can have sex because she's so turned on by all these ideas. We're talking like we've never talked. We've turned the TV off. We can't wait to spend more time with each other. This is without question the greatest time of my life and I've never been happier and I wouldn't even know what I wanted if it wasn't for you. Thanks Dan.
3: There are success stories and then there are crushing it stories and it sounds like You two are crushing it. Anybody else out there who's curious about FLR, female-led relationships, and wants to do a little bit of reading before you start exploring, I'd recommend Key Barrett's books. Thank you for calling in. Thank you for sharing. If you want us to open next week's Lovecast with your sex success story, your success story, give us a call. Share it. We might open the show with it before we get to the problems. Now, on to this week's problems.
5: Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-year-old woman in a stable 22-year relationship with a male partner calling from Toronto. During the pandemic, a friendship I had made at the pool with a man in his early 50s, who also has a long-term partner, has become very special to me. And with pools closed here over the past months, he and I have resorted to taking long afternoon walks together as a way of staying active and feeling less socially isolated from friends, etc., has become friends with my partner and my kids and I had met his wife several times and she was kind and welcoming to me. I had envisioned we'd all become better friends once social restrictions are lifted. Recently, however, I disclosed on a walk with my friend that prior to having children eight years ago, my relationship with my partner was monogamous. I valued being able to talk with him authentically as he had also been quite open about sharing his relationship history. Next time I saw him, he admitted that this disclosure had gotten him thinking about whether the two of us might be able to have a sanctioned affair and that he had feelings for me. I acknowledged a mutual attraction, but I expressed immediate pessimism and concern that this would work out if he did not already have this type of relationship with his wife. I said I didn't want to lose our friendship and that I thought we should keep things as they were and be careful not to let things cross the line. He went away and consulted with some of his close friends. He watched a video by you on monogamy, and then he told me by text that he decided to start having a conversation with his wife about this. I said I was nervous, that I was worried she would feel threatened by me and we wouldn't be able to stay friends. I said I really didn't want that to happen. But he said if he didn't tell her, he would end up lying and sneaking around. So he told her, and it did not go well. But he said it did lead to some important conversations on their end. Now, just as I have predicted, he has texted me to say that we can no longer be in contact. He said he hopes that that will change and that. He is glad he started this dialogue, and he has thanked me several times. He has not apologized to me, and now I'm left feeling like I have been used as a catalyst to create a change in his marriage, and I am now collateral damage. I feel really sad about losing this friendship that had come to be important to me, and I don't know what to say in response to him. Of course, I don't expect our friendship to be his priority, but I feel kind of harshly dismissed when I don't think I did anything wrong. Should I have handled this any differently? Is there anything I should say to him at this point? I just want my friend back, and I worry it is totally ruined now. Is there anything I can do?
3: So you told this friend of yours that you didn't want to fuck him if it meant potentially losing the friendship, that it wasn't worth the risk, that you valued him as a friend too much, and you asked him, not to bring it up with his wife, not to talk about it with his wife. And then he consulted with friends and watched me talk about non-monogamy and then brought it up with his wife and what you feared might happen that you would be exiled from his life. His wife would feel threatened. That all came to pass and you didn't just warn him one time not to go there, not to do this. It wasn't worth it for you to lose his friendship to get to fuck him. Wasn't worth it. You warned him more than once and he did it anyway because he obviously valued potentially getting to fuck you more than he valued your friendship and was willing to risk your friendship, being able to have you in his life with the prospect of getting to have his dick in you with his wife's permission, which he didn't get. And as you predicted, she was so threatened by this development that he's had to cut you off, cut you out of his life. You have every right to be angry. You have every right to feel hurt and discarded. You ask me what you can do now. Well, you can't just be angry forever. Go ahead and be mad. You sound super sad. I think you need to stir a little anger into your sadness and direct that anger at your former friend. And maybe you need to put it in an email or put it in a text. Just tell him how upset you are that he went and did what you told him not to do and what you feared might happen, happened. And it costs you his friendship, which you valued more than his dick, but he didn't value your friendship more than the prospect of getting to sleep with you. Be angry and then let it go. What do you do now? You know, if you want to have this friendship, if you want to have him back in your life again someday, what do you do now? What's your best course of action in the short term? It's to Hang way the fuck back. Send him that one text, send him that one email, and then don't reach out to him again. Respect the boundary that his wife has asked him to draw for her emotional comfort. And it might be that when she sees that you're capable of respecting that kind of boundary, that she may grow more comfortable with the idea of having you back in their lives again because she knows that you will respect that boundary, even if it's personally painful for you to respect the boundary that he's had to lay down at his wife's request. What that will signal to her is that if you do come back into his life as a friend, you will continue to respect boundaries that are established for her comfort, which would include the boundary of don't fuck my husband. But the only way to demonstrate to her that you can respect her boundaries and as a friend, prioritize their relationship in a way that even he seemed incapable of for a moment is to exit his life and wait. And you may be invited back into his life. You can put that in your email, put that in your text message. Hopefully at some point in the future, we can reestablish our friendship in a way that your wife is comfortable with it because I wouldn't want to do anything that made your wife feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm articulate that on the off chance that he's sharing this email with his wife or that she is looking at his emails or text messages. Put that in there explicitly. And then go find a better friend. Go make another friend. And we're coming out of the pandemic, hopefully, as more people get vaccinated, as more sane people get vaccinated, and you will be able to make new friends, have new social contacts. You feel his absence acutely because – Friends were hard to make. Friends were hard to see during the pandemic. And you were able to make this friendship, establish this bond, and spend a lot of time with this guy on these walks. And so that leaving your life in this way, pretty acutely painful at this moment. It will become less painful over time. You will make new friends. You will make friends who respect your boundaries. And hopefully when you make those new friends, you will miss him less. And then when the day comes when you're welcome back into their life, you may not even want to enter back into their lives. You may not want to reestablish this friendship because you have other better friends who are capable of respecting your boundaries and listening to the things you have to say about what you would like them to say or not say to their friends or spouses about you.
6: Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old queer female living in Western Canada, and I need help dealing with my in-laws. My husband and I have a one-year-old son with a peanut allergy. At this point, he hasn't had an anaphylactic reaction, but he gets hives covering his face and needs to be medicated to bring down the swelling. We have informed my in-laws about our son's peanut allergy probably around 10 times, whether it's casually over dinner or in the context of leaving our son with them to babysit and putting out his medication. My in-laws have now watched our son a handful of times and we're transitioning into a routine where they will watch him once a week. The other day we were having breakfast together and my mother-in-law asked, does the baby like peanut butter? Would he like this? I was shocked. When I realized she was serious, I began to fucking fume inside. I couldn't believe they had been watching him and had no recollection of the peanut allergy. My husband brought up the incident asking them, do you really not remember this allergy? They got extremely defensive asking how dare we accuse them of not being competent and comments along those lines. We never accused them of anything. We just wanted to get to the bottom of how they could possibly have no memory of it. They also said untrue things to my husband, such as that, They had never fed the baby anything other than what I had provided for them to feed him, which is just so far from the truth. Like I came home from work the other day and they were like, oh, we gave him some of our muffin. We hope that's okay. My response was, as it always is, yes, he can eat anything as long as you know the ingredients and there are no peanuts. It's important to note they are in their 70s and my mother-in-law has expressed concern to my husband about my father-in-law forgetting things. So it's already a sensitive topic. "'Leaving the conversation off on a rocky note "'and understanding it is a tough subject, "'we gave it a couple weeks to determine "'how to move forward.' Two weeks later, we called them to touch base. The conversation went even worse. There were lots of tears once again. My mother-in-law said she doesn't feel comfortable saying anything in front of me anymore, specifically me, because I will nitpick and deem her incompetent. That's not even kind of fair to say because I've never nitpicked anything they've done ever. In fact, this is the first time I've ever fucking brought up any concern I've had about them watching our son. They also mentioned their word will go and tell everyone and all their friends will hear about how incompetent they are. We haven't told anyone. Basically, they made it entirely about them playing the victims and even made comments to turn my husband and I against each other. I was hoping they would come back with an apology, maybe asking us to teach them more about the allergy so they're better informed moving forward. My husband thinks they're fine to watch our son and that if anything, it's a communication issue. This is possible. If I'm being honest, I don't think they've ever really listened to me and there have been countless times where they've forgotten important things I've told them about myself in the past. Even though it's hurtful, I usually just drop it. But this time I can't. Dan, what do I do? We value our relationship and we want our son to have this quality time with his grandparents, but I'm also so frustrated. I know my in-laws love and would never intentionally harm their grandson, but I'm concerned. If we do come to the conclusion we don't feel comfortable with them watching him, it could very well ruin our relationship and it would be heartbreaking. How do we come back from this? Please help.
3: You sound like an anxious person. I'm not saying you don't have something real to be anxious about, but it's possible that your in-laws are picking up on and reacting negatively to your anxiety, your legitimate anxiety for the safety of your child. I think this is a job for your husband, maybe your husband and a doctor or a couple of YouTube videos that he needs to really impress upon his parents that this is real and this is potentially life-threatening. And for him to do it on his own, to divorce it from their reactivity to you or your personality or whatever the ongoing conflict might be or the simmering conflict that you weren't really aware of or aware of how they felt about you until this pushed it. And, you know, you you may be accidentally pushing some of their buttons about their own anxieties, about aging and forgetfulness. And of course, they don't want you to think that they did something intentionally that may have put your child at risk, even though they did something out of probably just getting old and forgetful that did put your child at risk. And of course, your child safety has to be your top concern. So your husband goes in, your husband goes in with the information that they need and impresses upon them the severity of this situation, the risk and the danger. And when they watch your kid, make sure they know, or your husband should make sure they know what the symptoms are of anaphylactic shock and that the meds are on hand so that they can do something about it in an emergency if indeed they need to. And if they feed your kid peanuts or something that might have peanuts in it again, then you don't let them watch your kid on their own, not to punish them, but to protect your child, not from their malice, but from their forgetfulness, which is the peanut allergy is an affliction that your son has to live with. Old age, forgetfulness, senility, dementia, those may be afflictions that they are currently struggling with and feeling very insecure about. And the confrontation with you about this became something that they projected their anger onto, not anger with you necessarily, but anger about where they're at at this particular moment and what they're going through, their afflictions. You've got to approach this in a way that makes it not about your personality versus their personality, you judging them or shaming them, but just about how all of you can work together to protect your kid who has a peanut allergy while still allowing him to have a relationship with his grandparents who may be forgetful. That might mean no feeding your kid anything at all. That may mean when they're together with him or they come over to watch him, it's after mealtime and the kids go into bed and there are no snacks, of course, in your house that would be dangerous for your kid and grandparents aren't allowed to bring any over. There are ways you can get creative that allow for them to have a relationship that is controlled and that prioritizes your son's safety and your security as a parent. That You're doing everything you can to protect him while still allowing him to have a relationship with his forgetful, defensive grandparents.
7: Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I'm an early 40s gay man in a large city who was recently vaccinated and recently, for the first time in a long time, hooked up with a stranger. I was being very careful for the longest, but I was vaccinated. So anyway, I ate his ass for quite a long time. And then the next day, the next morning, and this has never happened to me, I was very, very sick. And I thought it was COVID, honestly, (laughs) because it had been a couple of weeks. I didn't really know what to think. So I was, I laid low, I was eating healthy, and I was fine after roughly, probably 36 hours. Um, And I'm fine now and everything's great. But I guess my question is, do those two things have anything to do with each other? It's never happened to me before and but i also it was also a super random thing to just be
3: sick i got vaccinated and then spent about 36 hours in bed it really knocked me flat i got the johnson johnson one shot no blood clots for me i'm fine but i was chills aches pains blinding headaches for 36 hours totally worth it i would do it again Sounds like you got vaccinated, and then two weeks later, you ate some ass, and then the next day, you got sick. 36 hours in bed for you at that moment. It's unlikely that that was a delayed reaction to the vaccination. Most people who've had the kind of reaction to the vaccination that I've had, who kind of got, I guess, mild case, as so our immune systems would kick into gear and protect us from more severe cases of COVID-19, happens right away. I got vaccinated in the morning that evening. I started to feel crappy. You got vaccinated two weeks later, you ate some ass. The next day, you felt crappy. Could have been a coincidence. Also, could have been COVID. It takes some weeks for the full protecting effects of the vaccines to kick into gear. So it's within the realm of possibility that you got exposed to COVID and the vaccine wasn't giving you the protection that you needed or that it would ultimately give you in the end yet, and you came down with COVID. You might want to go get a COVID-19 test to rule that out. You can also, you don't list your symptoms, would have been helpful to determine what exactly was going on here. There are also things that you can expose yourself to eating ass, You, you know, syphilis, gonorrhea, herpes, the big STIs. Also, E. coli, salmonella, salmonella in particular, can I really mean, E. coli can kill you, salmonella, you can not get fat. They can both put you in bed for a few days. You might want to talk to your healthcare provider and not your snarky sex advice podcast host about what that was and get tested. It is a risk. Eating ass is a pleasure. There are risks. There are risks associated with almost all pleasurable things that we human beings do. People go snowboarding for fun, slam into trees, die. People eat ass for fun, get salmonella, it's not pleasant. Or get oral syphilis, it's not pleasant. We weigh the risks and the benefits and we roll our dice and move our mice and we decide what risks we're willing to shoulder. So my money here is not on a reaction to the vaccine. That would have happened right away. Could have been salmonella, could have been E. coli. If it was either of those things, you might still need to be treated so that you are not infectious. Go see your doctor. Also, could have been COVID or maybe you had the flu, which is still a thing that people get. A lot fewer people are getting it because of social distancing, because of masking. You know, I for one hope that after we get on the other side of this pandemic, that masking sticks around You see in Japan, people who have colds, people who have the flu who have to travel, have to go to work, will wear masks to protect other people so they don't spread the infection. I would love that to take root in our culture and for people to take those steps to protect their friends and their neighbors and the other people who might be on the subway or bus with them when they're sick but can't stay home. So you called your sex advice podcast host. I'm glad you did. Thanks for the call. Now you need to call your doctor and make an appointment.
1: Hi, in just wondering if there's any, any medically backed way for people to achieve um, natural safe penis enlargement. Everything that anyone could ever research is heavily search engine optimized on the internet. It's all ads. There's very little evidence or or, or this clinical study is mainly dedicated to this, so I was just wondering if we're natural, like, uh, you know, there's traction extenders, like, uh, what is it? There's, Yeah, I'm sure there's a bunch of them, but uh, like size genetics or like something like that. Can you have any doctor validate that any of these actually work? Are there any side effects? I'm sure tons of uh, owners of penises would like to know. And not that, I, that I'm having any incredible need for such a contraption, but just curious.
3: I want to say nothing works and you just have to accept the penis that you have. But the Mayo Clinic says that stretching works. You use the word traction. There are traction devices for penises. They're actually recommended to men who are suffering from Peyronie's disease, which is a buildup of plaque or scar tissue in the in the shaft of the penis and the erectile tissues that can cause a penis to bend or go off at a, an angle And for most men who have Peyronie's disease, it's not a problem. But if it gets worse and worse, which it does in a small percentage of cases, it can make erections painful. It can make penetrative sex impossible. So there are these traction devices that are recommended to men who have Peyronie's disease that basically trap your head of the penis in the top and then you like crank it up and stretch it out. It's like a medieval rack that they would torture people on, but a little one. For your dick, that that can add half an inch, maybe an inch if you do it consistently and regularly, but only maybe. And these devices cost $500,000 and using them is really awkward and I imagine unpleasant and uncomfortable. So I would recommend instead of wasting your money on lotions or potions or surgeries that don't work or interfere with function or putting your penis in a little medieval torture rack designed just for penises that you accept your penis and enjoy the penis that you got. And if you want to bring in supplements instead of uh, pills, instead of those kinds of supplements, bring in supplements, bring in the cavalry, bring in your fingers, bring in your tongue, bring in your forearms, bring in sex toys, bring in cock sheaths, bring in strap ons. There are lots of ways to play with having a bigger dick without torturing or maiming the genetic biological flesh and blood dick that you were born with.
5: Hi, Dan. Bi woman, this woman here in Seattle sitting with my lesbian girlfriend. And we were just having an argument about whether straight people who date queer people are part of the LGBT U I A community, and we were just talking about it. And me being a bi woman, I guess I kind of got my feelings hurt, and felt like that notion is a little bit biphobic. So, just
8: wanted to know your thoughts.
3: L G B T Q T again, A twice, Y A twice in the longest versions of the initialism. Y A twice. Well, one A for asexual. The other A is for ally. I can't think in most cases, you know, if somebody is supportive of their bisexual spouse's sexual orientation, I can't think of a better ally than that person, than the person who married a bisexual person or partnered with a bisexual person and affirms and celebrates and honors their bisexuality, even if it's a monogamous relationship. So yeah, your male partner is not disqualified from identifying with the queer community or being a part of the queer community so long as they, I guess, fall under that A for ally category. So your spouse, your partner, if you have one, in a sense married into the community, are a part of the community as an ally, but also a part of the community by marriage in the same way that your brother-in-law is a part of your family by marriage. So tell your friends to go and Google the longer versions of the initialism. and They will see for themselves that your husband counts and is a part of the community. And while they're on the Google, they should also look up the term, the phrase gatekeeper.
8: Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. This is a longtime listener calling from Toronto, Canada. I am a hetero cis female, 28 years old, and my boyfriend and I uh, have been talking about having threesomes. He's interested in me and another woman, and I'm interested in him and another man. I think we've both decided that the best way of going about this is to hire a professional just to mitigate any jealousy issues but also because I feel like I would be awkward around another woman sexually like I haven't really like thought about having sex with women in that way but I want to be like a good sport for him I'm hoping that a professional would help guide both of us through the session, make me feel more comfortable, include me really well, um, and also kind of just show me how to participate and make it fun for him and vice versa. So my question really is, how do I find these people? It doesn't seem like searching on Google is a good idea, and also what should I ask this person when I finally do find them? Like what are good questions to help us narrow down who would be a good fit for us?
3: Some straight people will have three ways where, you know, it's kind of a pile and there may be some incidental or even intentional or sustained same sex contact. I guess that would fall under the banner of hetero flexibility in that kind of moment. Other straight couples, straight people will have three ways where the two Same-sex participants orbit the opposite-sex participant like moons of Jupiter. They never touch each other. They don't get any closer than they were when they were created. You can have that kind of three-way and you can find a professional who understands that that's the kind of three-way that you're comfortable having so long as you communicate that to the pro. You ask if there's a pro out there who can guide you. And actually what you need to do is guide the pro. You need to tell the pro What it is that you want, what it is that you're comfortable with, what your expectations are, and then the pro can decide whether they would be a good match for you. You don't want to waste somebody's time. There are some people out there who do sex work who complain about the, you know, time wasters, people who may be jacking off, maybe masturbating about the thought of getting with a sex worker. And it fuels their fantasy to have an interaction with a sex worker about a hypothetical date A hypothetical booking that's never going to happen. You don't want to be that kind of person. You want to dive in, share the information efficiently about what you want, what your expectations are, what you hope to get from this encounter, and then invite them to share what their expectations of you as a couple would be. And so long as you're really clear that you want the moons of Jupiter threesome and not the lots of incidental same-sex contact, you know, there are a lot of people out there, a lot of opposite-sex couples who go to pros or search for unicorns because the woman is particularly interested in having a bisexual experience, of having a same-sex experience. And a lot of pros who are approached by couples will at least come into the interaction, come into the negotiations with the assumption that you may want some girl-on-girl play or girl-on-girl contact. You just need to be really clear that that's not what you want. That's not what you're after. This is about your boyfriend, and you want the moons of Jupiter booking. You don't want the three people in a heap rolling all over each other booking. And you can have that, and you will have that, so long as you are clear about that being what you want, what you're after. You may encounter a sex worker or two who's not interested in a moons of Jupiter three-way I think they would be rare. Good sex workers, and you're going to want a good one, are all about meeting the needs of their clients and meeting their clients where they are. But they can't meet you where you are if they don't know where you are. You're expecting them to guess where you are. Be clear, be detailed, and have fun.
9: Hi, Dan Savage and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I need your help planning what I hope will be a quarantine success story. My husband and I have been dabbling in monogamish activities for a little while, Um, but unfortunately a lot of that has been curtailed due to COVID. We have done a threesome experience with a man. We have gone to some sex clubs and I have played with women there, but we're really dying to do a classic um, two girls, one guy, three way. And uh, we haven't been able to because of COVID. And we've been talking and fantasizing a lot about it. And that's sort of morphed into talking about potentially hiring an escort. I think that that would be really sexy. He does too. So we talk about that a lot. And we have just sort of dipped our toes into trying to plan that now that we are vaccinated and so uh, his birthday is coming up in a few weeks, and I thought rather than waiting even longer that I might just go ahead and plan one for his birthday. And I know that he will be okay with it. Uh, we have talked a lot about it. I've told him that he has free reign to plan sexy surprises, and he's has insinuated to me that I should just go ahead and pick an escort and plan something, so I feel like this will be a welcome surprise. I found a beautiful curvaceous woman uh, who's an independent sex worker, and we've been chatting. She seems great. I'm super excited, but my question is: I'm not quite sure how to roll out the surprise. There's so many different versions that I can think of that would be fun or sexy. Um, we're getting—I'm getting us a hotel downtown in the city where we live, but I don't know. You know, do we get a drink at the bar, and I have her? come walk up and sit with us? Do I leave him at the bar for a little bit and meet her upstairs and have him come up and you know, just walk into a room with the two of us there? Do I tell him when we get to the hotel uh, just so he can have a little bit of advance notice and, you know, maybe we can have some fun in anticipation of her arrival? Do I write him a note, uh, a little letter, and pass that to him and tell him what's about to happen when we first get to the hotel over dinner? There's a lot of options.
3: I'm wary of insinuations. You say that you're husband has insinuated that it would be all right with him for you to plan this as a sexy surprise. And that insinuation came during a conversation where you told him he could plan one for you as a sexy surprise. I think you want clarity, not insinuations, not hints before you set up a sex date for someone where they may feel pressured to go through with something in the moment that for reasons that may have nothing to do with the person that you picked or anything else, but in that moment, they may not be Ready for or, or up for, and if you've gone all the time in trouble of getting a hotel room and getting a sex worker, it puts a kind of pressure on your husband to go through with it, whether he wants to or not. And so, I don't think this is a great idea, just because the risks of it falling apart in the last moment are high, and you wouldn't want to hurt the sex worker's feelings. On the other hand, a sexy surprise is one way to keep the spark alive, and. If that's what he's told you that he wants, and again, no insinuations, statements, clarity, you need him to use his words. If he's invited you explicitly to surprise him sometime with a sex worker or with uh, an additional bonus partner for a three-way, well, then I guess you have his consent to go through with it. So I guess I'm just bumping on that word, he has insinuated. It may be that this is something that you said that you wanted. You were up for this kind of sexy surprise. And to avoid making you feel uncomfortable about this being something you wanted, he, you know, just allowed you to assume that it might be something that he wanted too. So first get clarity. And then if it's clear, if he absolutely positively wants you to set something like this up for him sometime, then you can go for it. I think part of what's fun about a planned three-way, about, uh, you know, a, a date for a sexual adventure, is the anticipation of it. A surprise can also be fun and sexy, but telling him that morning, telling him over drinks before the sex worker arrives, that gives him some time to to anticipate it. You know your husband better than I do. If you think he would really enjoy that anticipation, whether it was a couple of days worth of anticipation and the sex you guys would be having in the run-up to that moment, or a few hours of anticipation that he would enjoy, or if you think that he would get much more pleasure from the surprise from the shock of this person walking up to him in the bar or this person being in the room with you when he came up to the room from the bar or the restaurant or the gym, well then you can go for that. I definitely know people who've done this exact thing to great success. So I guess my worst case scenario disorder is kicking in a little bit here because I generally come down on the side of no surprises when it comes to sex that a surprise can make somebody feel coerced If you know for a fact that your husband wouldn't feel coerced in that moment, would feel empowered to bail or ask for a rain check if he wasn't feeling it or he wasn't feeling her, if the person you think is awesome and a great choice doesn't appeal to him, that there's a graceful way for him to bow out. And you should say that to the sex worker in advance. Like, I'm planning this as a surprise. So if he's not feeling it, no hard feelings. We'll pay you for your time. If she's a pro – She'll appreciate that kind of honesty and directness and, of course, being paid whether anything happens or not. Then you should go for it. So I guess this is a my blessing with all sorts of qualifications and a little bit of homework and advance work and screw diligence that you need to do before you set this in motion. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to talk about an important new book, Climate Change, Racial Injustice, Economic Inequality, The Pandemic – we don't really need something else to worry about right now, but in her new book, Countdown, Dr. Shauna H. Swan argues that we won't be around to worry about any of those things if we don't start worrying about and start doing something about, well, declining sperm counts and shrinking dicks. Welcome, Dr. Swan, to the, <laughs> the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for coming on the show. <laughs>
10: Thanks for having me, Dan.
3: So you're an epidemiologist at the ITCHON or ICANN? I don't know how I can, to pronounce that. ICANN. School of yeah. Medicine. Uh, And your book touches on a lot of things that come up on this show all the time. Dick's taints come erectile dysfunction, making babies. What is going on? What is Countdown about?
10: So Countdown is about how, um, well, I'll just read you the title (laughs) because it's really (laughs) how our modern world is threatening sperm counts, altering male and female reproductive development and imperiling the future of the human race. That about some setup.
3: <laughs> that is a subtitle that seems catastrophizing when you first pick up the book. Seems like it might be an overstatement to attract attention, but that is not the case. The stats and the the, the data you marshal really grim. We're on track if trends continue the way they are now to reach sperm counts of 0 by 2045.
10: Yes and no. So um, where we are right now, actually, I'm not sure because the last data that we looked at was 2011, but at that point, sperm counts were already pretty low. The Western world estimate was 47 million sperm per milliliter. Sounds like a lot, but actually not a lot because when that number goes below 40, that's when it starts to get harder to have a baby and it drops off really quickly. The time that you can, the number of cycles it takes to conceive a baby is actually gets larger and larger quickly when you go below 40. Okay. So here we are at 47. If the sperm count decline curve, if you will, which is a straight line were to continue till it hit zero, it would hit zero in 2045. That's a hypothetical. However, these are medians. So that's the middle of the distribution. And that means half of the numbers are lower and half are bigger. And sperm count can't be negative, right? So you can't actually hit zero. That's, um, you know, if you will, an arithmetic, you know, trick if you, that you can hit zero by extending the curve. But in practice, it's going to have to level off.
3: The stats are grim. Sperm counts in the West have fallen 59% between 1973 and 2011.
10: Last 40 years, I would say, for sure.
3: And miscarriages you write in the book, up 1% a year since 1990. That data only goes to 2011, but no reason to think that's necessarily slowed. You write that sperm banks... That used to find that sixty nine percent of aspiring sperm donors made the cut for decent sperm in two thousand and three, only forty four percent did in two thousand and thirteen in just a decade. These trends seem pretty grim for human reproduction
10: yeah dan they're they 're really um shocking really and and by the way, testosterone which is maybe something you've talked a lot on your show that is is also declining at the same rate. And so um, accompanying that is increased uh, use of testosterone supplementation by young men, increased rates of erectile dysfunction, and so on and so forth. So every aspect of reproductive health has been declining at about the same rate, at about 1% per year. And um, we can't really continue that indefinitely.
3: What's driving this? What's the cause?
10: Yeah, so there are many causes. Of course, everything is multifaceted. But I like to set aside first what I call lifestyle factors. And those are things that we pretty much have control over how much we smoke, how much we drink, the kind of food we eat, whether we're obese, whether we get any exercise, all of those things matter for sperm count and male and female uh, reproductive function as well, by the way. The other sort of big category of causes, if you take out lifestyle, is chemical. Okay. And then when you break those chemical causes out, what I like to break out is those that could affect our body's hormones and those that don't obviously affect our body's hormones. And the reason I do that because I'm talking about reproduction, and reproduction depends heavily on hormones. Everyone knows that testosterone, estrogen, right? Mm -hmm. So the chemicals that have the ability to get into our bodies and alter the amount or the distribution of testosterone and estrogen and other hormones in our body, endocrine disrupting chemicals are the ones I worry about.
3: These endocrine disrupting chemicals that we're pumping out into the environment, one of the most alarming points you make in the book is that the effect is cumulative over generations that we're going to reach a certain point where the damage is done and the damage is heritable and is passed on. And we may back ourselves reproductively speaking into a corner that there's no escape from. If we don't start to do something about these pollutants that are disrupting our hormone levels.
10: Yes. An easy way to start to think about this is that if a woman is pregnant And she's carrying a child. That child is going to be exposed to the same thing she's exposed to because it gets into the bloodstream, crosses the placental barrier, goes into the fetus, right? So now you have two generations exposed. And then that fetus contains inside him or her or them um, a germ cell or germ cells that will go on to produce sperm or eggs in the next generation. So they're exposed. So that's three generations exposed. Right. And then so that's mother, you know, grandmother, mother and child all exposed to the first hit. But suppose along the way there are more chemicals put into the mix. You have a cumulative effect of what you inherited from what you're getting every day. And beautiful work from University of Washington showed that if you do that in three Generations, you can produce the kind of declines we're seeing in sperm
3: count. One of the things that's getting the book a lot of attention is the, the physical changes that are already manifesting, particularly in men. Like a lot of people are jokingly pointed out on the Internet that maybe this will make men care about environmental degradation and do something about environmental pollutants. Because over time, over the generations, dicks are getting smaller,
10: Actually, I can't say that. I haven't actually said that. So let me say what I did say, okay? Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry yeah, to put
3: words no, about Dick No, I'm sure
10: you saw that on the internet. You know <laughs> I did, I did. So it
3: had to be true, but then I read the book. So forgive me for being a stoner. That's fine.
10: So what I can say for sure, because I observed it, is that when a pregnant woman is exposed to higher levels of certain endocrine-disrupting chemicals and the ones that I've studied most are things that make plastic soft and flexible called phthalates, when she's exposed to more of those, then her baby boy will be born with genitals that are somewhat different. And the differences are in the direction of being smaller. Do you want me to tell you exactly what that is?
3: Yes. Yes, please.
10: Okay. So in order to understand this and to talk about it, um, I have to bring in a term the street term taint, okay? So that, <laughs>
3: <laughs> would you so like that, to define that for my listenership? I'm sure they're completely <laughs> lost now. <laughs> Androcratian <laughs> and disruptor, like they're they're following that, but taint. I'm sure they have no idea. What, no, they know what we. Right. They know what a taint is.
10: You know, you know what taint is. So, so actually, when I started doing this, I didn't, and and I actually heard from a nurse who was working with us saying, "Oh, my kids tell me about that. That's the taint, or the gooch, or the grundle, or the ABC." By the way, I don't know if you heard that one, but I haven't. No, that's assball connector. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Still, um, so much
3: he, to learn, even for me.
10: Right, right, right. So this is incredible distance. I don't know what to call it because it's not really a structure. It's a distance, a measure of size, but it's not like the size of your feet or even the size of your dick. It's, it's the size of your whole general area, really. It summarizes the whole general area. And technically what it is, if you go to measure it, which I've done many times in my studies, uh, you put one side of the calipers at the center of the anus And the other side, you have two choices. You can put it at the place where the scrotum meets the smooth tissue. So, you know, it goes from rough to smooth underneath Mm -hmm. the scrotum. Okay. That's one landmark. That's called the, actually the anoscrotal distance. Okay. Mm -hmm. Or you can go all the way to the top of the penis and that's called the anopenile distance. Okay. When the mother has more phthalates in her body in early pregnancy then this distance is not as long as you might expect. That is, as long as it would be if the mother didn't have any phthalates or Mm -hmm. had very low levels of phthalates. So why is this important? Well, it turns out that um, this distance is the most, what we call dimorphic or different measurement in the entire body between males and females, that is genetic males and genetic females. Okay? Mm-hmm. And and so in the laboratory for about 100 years, when pups were born out of a the litter, they would want to see which were the males and which were the females. They just hold them up by the tail and look and you can see with the naked eye because it's 50 to 100 percent longer in males and females. And so it is in humans as well. So in the absence of phthalates, that distance <clears throat> will be much longer. Fifty to one hundred percent longer in a male newborn as a female newborn.
3: So why is it a problem if that shrinks? If the 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 tank gets smaller, what's the what's the doom scenario there?
10: Exactly. Why does that matter? Okay. Well, first of all, it matters because it might be predicting certain birth defects right then at birth. It might matter. Mm -hmm. That is, the testes might be testicles might be less. Completely descended, or might be some abnormality of the penis, and, and so on. So there, it, it's it's a signal that something went wrong. Okay, and then because this distance is constant throughout life, in the sense that you're if you have a small hand, you always have a small hand, small feet, and so on. So controlling for size as you age, that distance remains constant. So we got. 18 to 21 year olds to come in, let us measure this distance in them in the University of Rochester, paid them 75 bucks, and they let us do anything, including <laughs> measure this. And they gave us a sperm sample. And then we measured the sperm count. Guess what we found?
3: That what the, would you guess? the the shorter taint correlated with lower sperm counts.
10: A plus. And another study in California did a similar thing, actually replicated the sperm count finding, and also looked at the taint in men who had conceived a child and men who had not. Infertile men, it was an infertility clinic. Infertile Mm -hmm. men, shorter taint. So this distance then tells you so much. It tells you what was going on in pregnancy because you can't look in that black box. You can't know what the fetus is exposed to in pregnancy. We can't get a sample, <laughs> you know, but we had a sample of the mother. but We can't get a sample from the fetus without risking a lot. And it tells you when this child grows up, how is his reproductive health going to be? How is his function going to be? Okay. So you see that we have now linked phthalates, which are on everyday life to low sperm
3: count. Who would have thought that, Taints would be the canary in this particular coal mine, right? And I, I you know, I gotta say, like phthalates, th- we've talked about phthalates on this show before. We were talking about phthalates a dozen years ago, really, because the sex toy community, yes, was organizing to get phthalates out of dildos yeah. to get Good these idea. chemicals that are in basically everything else. So many other things that we, literally, some things we consume. In, in makeups we put on, in, in moisturizers we rub into our skin and our faces, these chemicals that are now being identified as hugely problematic in, in, in the way that your book unpacks, somehow the like feminist woman owned sex toy merchants a, a dozen years ago were ahead of this curve. Because they they irritated people's skins, because they were bad for uh, people's labia, for people's uh, you know the very sensitive tissues of their anus, and there was this push to get phthalates out of sex toys, and we need now to rep, and it was a pretty successful one, yeah. Which is why most sex toy stores only have like dildos that are pure solid silicone, right. uh, and the only place you can get these shitty dildos now uh, are you know fly by night sex stores and you should you and people are advised that if you don't know what the dildo's made out of put a condom on it and we <laughs> need to now replicate this effort that was kind of pioneered by sex shops a dozen years ago wow for ev- literally everything else
10: yeah well actually the phthalate syndrome was defined in rodent studies in about 2005 so maybe that predated that
3: yeah it would predate Yeah, a little
10: that. bit a little bit and 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 what those studies showed was what they called it the phthalate syndrome i mean this is a lot this is big because there's not a lot of chemicals that have a syndrome named after them
3: okay i I've got to ask the the question I think that's probably occurred to some people who are listening is there an upside? to people being less capable of reproducing, you know, most of our environmental problems, climate change, overfishing, mass extinction at bottom are about human overpopulation, overconsumption. Wouldn't the planet and wouldn't those of us who survive benefit from there being a whole lot fewer of us?
10: Uh oh, that's such a hard question, isn't it? I mean, th- that's going to happen anyway, by the way, whether we think it's good or bad. Um, there's apparently too many people in the world. But if you look at the projections, say UN projections in what their lower estimate is, that is that, you know, we're going to reach a maximum at 2070, or some people say 2060, and never come back up. Okay, so th- this is not going on forever by any estimate. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's going to come down. But more than that, let's just think about non-humans for a second. So if you look at non-human species around the globe, They're having the same reproductive problems we're having. And that's been well documented. So, you know, fish and alligators and alligators with small penises have been in the stories uh, for for a very long time.
3: Because Um, these chemicals that we're pumping into the environment and pumping into ourselves, we're also pumping into the waste stream, dumping in rivers and oceans, back into into soils. And it's not just us.
10: Right. So they're decreasing their population size too. And I can tell you they're not choosing that. Right, so I mean, if you want to say this is a good thing, you have to say this is a good thing for the planet as a whole and the and the other thing to remember is that for a couple that wants to have a baby, a couple of you know men and women or two men or two women, or if they want to have a baby, they should be able to without fear of failure due to these chemicals.
3: This has to be uh, driven by the profit motive. Somebody is making and selling these chemicals for a reason and is going to resist not profiting off making and selling these chemicals. Who are those people? What do we do about this? And, and very quickly, they're in everything. Yes. The lining of soup cans, face lotions, they're, they're what make plastic bags soft. If you're microwaving leftovers, In Tupperware, (laughs) you're exposing yourself to these chemicals that you may be fine. Your taint may be the longest taint on the block, but you have to think about your kid and grandkids' taint now when you consume, when you put something in the microwave in a Tupperware container. How are we going to get these out of the environment and and where's the resistance going to come?
10: What we have to do is we have to, first of all, I say it's three steps. We have to recognize the problem, which is definitely not. Widely recognized. Okay, we have to own up to it, and not be afraid to talk about it. Because talking about sex problems is, as you know, not everybody's cup of tea, right? And and then we have to recognize that the chemicals um, that we have right now in our products have to be replaced because we really want those products, and they do make our modern lives, you know, function. We're dependent on them, but they don't have to be made out of chemicals that affect our hormone systems. There are alternatives. So we have to have safer alternatives. And then we have to regulate, regulate. You know, most of these are not regulated. Most of these were what's called grandfathered in. When that bill in 1976 came in and that was the Substances Toxic Substances Control Act, they said, okay, everything that's out there now, it's been here for a long time, doesn't seem to be harming people. We'll just let that all in. And they were never tested. Right. And, mm-hmm. and when a new product comes along, it doesn't have to be tested either in the United States. So it's not like a drug. The FDA does pretty well. It protects us, you know, it gives us safe vaccines. It gives us safe, safe medications. That's good. But the same thing should be applied to chemicals that we introduce into our body, just like medications.
3: And where is the resistance going to come from? Is it Dow big chemical uh, companies who's gonna I'm,
10: I'm sure the chemical companies are not happy with me that's for sure but there are also establishment um regulators and toxicologists have been doing things the same way for a very long time making the same wrong assumptions for some, the the assumption that we make in regulation is that the more of something we have the worse it is that's absolutely not true for endocrines for hormones we, there's different levels different dose levels Convey different risks. So, if you're going to give a high dose, drop it down until it seems to be safe, put it on the market, you've missed the risk from the low doses, and we're exposed to low doses.
3: So, we've known about the risks of climate change for more than a century. And it's only very recently, particularly as people feel the impacts themselves with wildfires and tornadoes and hurricanes and rising seas, that a majority are starting to take it seriously and wanting to see action. It may be too late to, to to do something about climate change. If we wait until everyone in their own lives are seeing the impact of these hormone disruptors, is it going to be too late
10: i 'm not you know, a seer, I can't see the future. I can, I'm a hopeful person, actually. And I believe that through assisted reproductive technologies, we'll be able to bridge the gap, if you will, between Mm -hmm. that period when natural fertility is very low, and when we can start to recover. Because it's been shown in the laboratory that if you stop this onset slot of chemicals into people for three generations, for them, it was for animals in the lab, you can return everything to normal. To healthy reproductive function, so we're going to have this period <clears throat> where we're going to be things are going to be really difficult, and then I think it we'll, can turn around if we take these chemicals out of commerce.
3: Dr. Shauna Swan, epidemiologist at the Icahn School of Medicine, and author of the new book Countdown: How Our Modern World Is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It was a real pleasure to talk with you and I really enjoyed the book. I enjoyed and it too, Dan. Thank I you. was scared to death of the, by the book, but I did enjoy it. And I hope people take it seriously and start to do now for Kansas soup. What dildo merchants did a dozen years ago for insertable sex toys and get these chemicals out.
10: Thanks a lot. Dan, a 28 year old bi-female. I just found out that I'm pregnant and I'm getting an abortion. I know that that's the right thing for me. I'm not ready to have a kid financially, emotionally. I'm in the middle of school, and I'm just not there. But I'm really afraid of the procedure, whether that's medical or surgical. And I just, I mean, I can't call my mom about it because she doesn't agree with abortion. So I guess I'm just calling. To maybe get some reassurance
0: that everything's going to be okay. (laughs) You're going to be okay. Hi, it's Nancy. And I'll answer this because I've been through it a few times. Uh, I've mentioned before on the show that I went through multiple miscarriages, like a lot. And the medical procedure to remove the fetus is the same. But the circumstances and the emotions are very different, of course. I believe that the anti-abortion movement have piled on so much fear and shame that it adds a lot of unnecessary anxiety to that very safe, very routine medical procedure. And while every woman has a different experience, I can say that for me, it never hurt very much at all. In fact, after the first one, you know, I was really worried that it would be painful. And when it was all over, I said to the doc, is that all you got? And the doctor shot back, oh, you want more? (laughs) So where I went, the staff, um, they had such compassion and sense of humor. And chances are, if you go to like a Planned Parenthood or other feminist place, you'll have a good experience. And if you're lucky, you'll get some delicious drugs for afterward. (laughs) Um, But just generally, if you can separate the physical from the emotional pain... You'll probably have a better time of it. And I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that your mom won't be able to help you with the emotional pain of this. You should seek out support from friends or counselors, and Planned Parenthood could help you with that too. Uh, and finally, it sounds like you feel sure of your decision, and that's really great. You're doing the right thing. You could check out Shout Your Abortion online for more support. Good luck. You're going to be okay.
11: Hi, Dan. I'm a pan woman in my late 20s, married to a pan man in his late 30s. We're living in the suburbs of Boston, and we just had a, a baby six months ago. Uh, we also moved in next door to my mom right when our daughter was born. It's been really, really great to have them, her and my stepdad, for the pandemic. Uh, and I get along with them really well, so it's, it's generally just really, really great. We recently found out that a friend of ours has the same job title as my husband in Seattle, working in tech. And makes three times the money. So we've been looking into my husband getting a job out there and ultimately moving to Seattle. This would be great for us. My husband was raised in the city proper and misses it. We don't like dealing with the snow in the winter. We don't like the brutal heat of the summer. Um, we'd both like to start fresh and make new friends in general. Seattle just seems like a slam dunk for us as long as my husband husband can find a worthy job. My mom is devastated at the thought that we might leave her behind. We offered to have her move in with us, but she's coming up with a million reasons that it won't work either, like she doesn't like the gloomy weather, or she can't live in the city proper, or she doesn't want to leave her mother behind. Why don't I want her to be around to help? Wasn't she helpful enough? It's a lot. My big question is, how do I explain to her that I don't need her? I would like her to come, but I would be perfectly happy to move and get a fresh start without sounding like a dick. I just, I feel guilty that I would be comfortable leaving, but I also don't. I think that moving is the best choice for my family. And unfortunately, that includes leaving behind my mom if I have to.
4: Guilt
3: trips are to grandparents what tantrums are to toddlers. It's a way for your mom to exert control by having a feeling, by throwing a fit, by screaming and yelling, by falling on the floor, by accusing you of... Not caring about her and attempting to make you feel terrible that, you know, she hasn't done enough. Yeah, and tantrums and guilt trips continue if they work. So you can't let them work. Sometimes you have to let a toddler cry it out as you stand there, send them to their room. And with a parent who's essentially throwing a grown-up tantrum, you got to let them say whatever it is that they need to say. You got to let them cry it out. But then once you've made the decision... It's not a negotiation anymore. You have made the decision to move to Seattle if your husband finds that job. You have communicated to your mother that you don't think she's done anything wrong and you're not moving to get away from her, but this is the right choice for your family. And you've gone above and beyond the call. You've offered to allow her to move with you, to move in with you, and to move her to Seattle with you. So obviously you want her around and you appreciate her, but you can't stay where you're at now forever because your mom has, is having a tantrum in the form of a never-ending guilt trip. Yeah, no. Nope, nope, nope. It'll stop eventually. Or maybe not. Maybe it'll go on forever, the grousing and the guilting of you about it. But you don't have to let it work. You don't have to let it in. If you get on the phone with mom after you've moved and she instantly starts talking about how hurt she is that you moved, tell her you're going to give her a call later and get off the phone. You can train her not to bring this up all the fucking time. And every once in a while, when she starts in, you can re-extend the invitation to move her to Seattle. If you guys make a lot of money, you can have a mother-in-law apartment over your garage, like half the wealthy techies in this area, and she can move to it. But you can't let like with toddlers, like with two-year-olds, same thing with 62-year-olds. You can't let the tantrum work or the tantrum never stops. If the two-year-old sees that they can manipulate parents with these fits, that incentivizes the having of fits. If parents of adult children see that the guilt trips and drama work and it gets their way, if adult parents of adults see that the guilt trips and the drama and the tantrums they're having work, They will continue. So you just got to screw your resolve to the sticking place. Screw your courage to the sticking place and not let it work. Tell mom it is not working, that you are making this decision, decision based on what's best for your family. But I do got to say, as someone who lives in Seattle, yeah, you might make, your husband might make three times as much money here as he does wherever you're currently living in that snowy hellscape. But everything here costs three times as much. The house you buy here will cost at least three times as much as the house you currently own in Buffalo, New York or wherever the fuck. All right. Before we get to listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Onina Nelson tweets post vaccine. High libido is a thing, but I doubt it's a side effect of the vaccine. It's the relief, lack of stress and new freedom. The vaccine gives us that improved mental health can improve Libido. Very good point. Dennis DeClaudio tweets, I'm getting back into the Savage Love Cast podcast. Forgot how much I enjoyed having at fake Dan Savage's reasoned humanity in my life. Was a regular listener since way back near its beginning episodes. But stopped listening when I became obsessed with our global trash fire. Welcome back, Dennis. It's good to have you. And finally, Diana Edelman tweets checked my bank statement, saw charge for the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, smiled and thought, worth every penny, only charge I'm happy to see. Well, Diana, you just found out at the top of this week's show that your subscription to the Magnum Savage Lovecast gets you more now. I hope you'll be joining us for the first sack lunch on May 6th. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Love Cast, And a big thank you to everyone out there who posted to social media about the show this week. We really appreciate it. And now your response calls.
2: Hey, Dan, this is a response to the caller who Googled some guy she wants to go out with and found out he broke into some cars 10 years ago. Your advice was great, but something occurred to me. I would recommend to her to just have your radar on high alert for addiction issues and alcoholism. I am a former addict and alcoholic who's in a 12-step program, and so I know a lot of former addicts and alcoholics, and you know that's something that an addict might do for various reasons when caught in the grips of their addiction. So I would just be on high alert for that and go out with him and check him out and just pay close attention to his behavior around drugs and alcohol because maybe he's clean and sober now too and he's over that. Or maybe he was and is still an active addict. And yeah, that's also kind of a deal breaker. Hey, Dan. Calling with a comment to... The woman who was calling about her mom receiving an email scam uh, message recently, she mentioned that in the title of the email, the scammer included her mom's password that she uses commonly on across a couple websites. Go change all those passwords. Like, that'll solve the problem immediately. That'll, you know, hopefully put your mom's mind at ease. I also got a very similar email, went and changed my passwords. I, like Dan, don't really look at porn and would rather read erotica, so I wasn't worried about it but after i did that the email stopped this is a response to
6: the caller in 755 who said that the vaccine made him and his friends super horny the vaccine made me super horny and i know it's because i am just thinking about all the people that i'm going to be able to fuck once the world opens up so maybe that's what's going on but either way let's all get vaccinated (laughs)
3: And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get your questions and comments to us. You can call 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at lovecast.com. Like I said at the top of the show, I'll be hosting Hump's Greatest Hits, a screening on Saturday May 1st. Go to HumpFilmFest.com to get tickets to that screening that I'm hosting or another screening that might work better for your schedule. There are lots of screening times to choose from. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Shauna Swan on Twitter at Dr. Shana Swan. The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thank you for downloading.